Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. This past week, we heard more testimony in the public impeachment hearings, and we had some critical testimony from the ambassador to the European Union, Gordon Sondland. He testified that there was indeed a quid pro quo in demanding that Ukraine investigate Burisma and the Bidens in exchange for military aid and a visit to the White House. Sondland also threw everyone under the bus, saying that Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, Vice President Mike Pence, and Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney all knew what was going on. My producer, Victor Wright, joins us for more on this one. Gordon Sondland might be the most important witness, save for somebody like John Bolton, who can maybe connect a few more of the dots. But Gordon Sondland was heavily involved in this pressure campaign for Ukraine. As I said, he threw a lot of people under the bus. He said that Secretary... Perry, Ambassador Volker, and he worked with Rudy Giuliani, but he also mentioned that Mike Pompeo knew about this. Vice President Mike Pence knew about this. Basically, it was no secret. Everybody knew about it. Here's a little clip we wanted to play from Gordon Sondland's testimony where he basically said, we worked with Rudy Giuliani at the express direction of the president. Secretary Perry, Ambassador Volker, and I worked with Mr. Rudy Giuliani on Ukraine matters at the express direction of the President of the United States. We did not want to work with Mr. Giuliani. Simply put, we were playing the hand we were dealt. We all understood that if we refused to work with Mr. Giuliani, we would lose a very important opportunity to cement relations between the United States and Ukraine. So we followed the president's orders. Now, this is really key. And a lot of people took this as Gordon Sondland directly tying the president to this pressure campaign because it came from the top. And when he talks about how many people were involved and how many people knew about this, you kind of almost start to believe that this was the buzz, that the president knew all about this. And as I said before, he mentioned that Secretary of State Mike Pompeo signed off on this and Vice President Mike Pence was told about the link between the Ukraine military aid and the investigations. But I think Gordon Sondland later said that Mike Pence didn't really acknowledge him when he told him anything like that. One of the other things, President Trump's priority was that Ukrainians had to announce that they would start the investigation, not necessarily go through with it, but they at least wanted that announcement. Right, exactly. In the questioning, they asked, so... In order to get that White House meeting, Ukraine would have to start those investigations into Trump's political rivals. And Sondland responded with, well, they would have to acknowledge and announce to the public that they were doing it in the first place. And they said, well, did they actually care if they did them? And Goldman said, I never really heard about that. And this points to it being more of a political affair. He didn't really care about the corruption or the investigation itself. He just needed it announced. It would look bad for Joe Biden if his son was brought up into this corruption probe at that point. Another clip that we wanted to play, Gordon Sondland in his opening testimony said that there was a clear quid pro quo. Was there a quid pro quo? As I testified previously, with regard to the requested White House call and the White House meeting, the answer is yes. 
we all understood that these prerequisites for the White House call and the right White House meeting reflected President Trump's desires and requirements. The president on his part, he spoke to reporters later and said, oh, you know, I told him that I didn't want a quid pro quo. I didn't want anything. I just wanted Zelensky to do the right thing. And this is a drawback to a phone call that Gordon Sondland had with the president where he just expressly asked them, what do you want out of these guys? And this is a big part of the president and the Republicans defense where he says, I didn't want anything. I didn't want a quid pro quo. I think it was important to also note that there was never a point where President Trump said this is a quid pro quo to Zelensky, but it was heavily implied and everyone in the circle, according to Sondland, knew that it was implied. Yeah, let's play that clip when Gordon Sondland was talking about the president saying he didn't want anything. I just said, what do you want from Ukraine? I may have even used a four letter word. And he said, I want nothing. I want no quid pro quo. I just want Zelensky to do the right thing, to do what he ran on, or, or words to that effect. One of the main criticisms of Gordon Sondland was that he couldn't really remember a lot of what was going on. He wasn't a note taker like some of the other witnesses giving testimony before. And he kept throwing it saying, well, the White House didn't give me documents that I wanted. They didn't release certain text messages. They didn't release things that could maybe make me remember some of the other details. Republicans jumped on that because saying he didn't really remember a lot of details. Democrats were very frustrated by some of that stuff as well. So just to end it off, Victor, you were talking about how this could mark a shift in this whole impeachment hearing, but still both Republicans and Democrats are seeing the same set of details in completely different ways. There's one report that says that this testimony could be the before and after phase where the before they were just trying to get some of the facts out there. And after now we're seeing a lot of the political machine move after this testimony, Republicans say, listen, the investigation never went down, which means Trump really shouldn't be impeached. Whereas Democrats are saying he was caught in a bribe, even though the bribe didn't go through, it still happened. And that is enough for the impeachment to happen. Thank you, Victor. Thank you. Another big political story that happened this week that did get a little overshadowed by the impeachment hearings was the fifth round of Democratic debates that took place on Wednesday. We're less than three months away before voting starts in Iowa and New Hampshire, and Mayor Pete Buttigieg stood his ground. Joe Biden stumbled again, and Senator Kamala Harris had a few good moments. To break down what happened at the Democratic debate, we spoke to Niall Stanage, White House columnist at The Hill. I think that there was a problem for this debate in terms of it breaking through the enormous amount of political noise that we see in other areas, particularly the impeachment inquiry. And I suppose that factor in and of itself provides favorable ground for people who are doing well right now. And and right now, uh, Pete Buttigieg, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, is rising in the polls. And he'll be happy that the debate on Wednesday night didn't do anything to disrupt his momentum. Right. I mean, he's doing very well in Iowa, New Hampshire. I think he might be polling at the top before everybody else there right now. So as has been with all the other debates, the front runner gets all the heat. So everybody was expecting Pete Buttigieg to take a bunch of attacks from people. It didn't really materialize that way. There was a couple times people pointed to his record and his experience, but I think he held his ground still and countered with, you know, it's not all about Washington experience. It's about other experiences that I've lived through, and it's all about judgment also. I think most people, including myself, were expecting Pete Buttigieg to come under much more 
strong and fervent attack from his rivals. And that simply didn't happen. As you say, there were a couple of moments where people took sort of half-hearted jabs at him. But nothing landed, nothing did Mr Buttigieg damage. And so he'll be happy enough with that. Now, one of the issues that he was criticised for to some extent was his lack of support among black voters. That is an ongoing problem for him. And unless it changes, it would seem to limit his potential quite significantly in a Democratic primary. Joe Biden, he still remains the front runner overall. A lot of national polls, he's still on the top. His performances across all of the debates have been shaky at best, if you want to say. There's moments of strength, and then there's moments where he's just like fumbling with words or not really putting together cohesive arguments. Kind of the same thing this last debate also. I agree entirely. I think it was not a good debate for the former vice president. His answers contend to meander at times, but also he made some remarks or used some clumsy language that did him no good. For example, whenever the topic of domestic violence came up, he suggested that the best way to counter that was to keep punching at it. A very peculiar turn of phrase on that subject. Also uh, misspoke when he referred to having support from the only elected black female senator while Kamala Harris is on the stage alongside him. Right. Mr. Biden was alluding to a former senator, but clearly in an inaccurate way. Yeah, and you know, on the domestic violence thing, it's hard to square away the wording he used. Obviously, keep punching and punching at it. He said it several times also. It is embarrassing to go through that, but I still feel like people still understand what he's saying. You know, it's something that we need to fight, something that we need to address in that sense. So we'll have to see if that really becomes a big hindrance. But yeah, poor use of words for sure. And then Cory Booker had a funny exchange against Joe Biden also when they were talking about marijuana legalization. And Joe Biden said he doesn't know if he's ready for that yet. It might be a gateway drug. And Cory Booker's like, oh, I thought you were high when you said that. So that had a lot of applause and laughter during the debate. Yeah, and there were some more lighthearted moments such as that. And that actually goes to a bigger point about the debate, which is that there was not a lot of empathy. I mean, there were disagreements about certain policy points and there were divergent views on some issues, but there wasn't real personal aggressiveness, to my mind, in this debate in the way that we've seen in some of the previous encounters. Yeah, I think probably the more aggressive points that might have happened occurred with Senator Kamala Harris and Representative Tulsi Gabbard. Because uh, Kamala Harris was hitting on her for basically being very critical of the Democratic Party and Hillary Clinton and kind of the foreign policy of Democrats. I think that probably was the most contentious part of last night's debate. Yes, I would agree with you. Kamala Harris going after Tulsi Gabbard, alleging that she was buddying up to Steve Bannon, the president's former chief strategist, appearing on Fox News to hit the Democratic Party and so forth. Tulsi Gabbard's obviously a very idiosyncratic candidate, and she has a niche, but she, I think, attracts quite a lot of dislike from mainstream Democrats. And that was certainly very evident in Senator Harris's comments about her. Leading up to this debate, there had been a lot of conversation about how left the party is moving and where all the moderates are. So people like Pete Buttigieg, who was surging in Iowa, New Hampshire, Joe Biden, Senator Amy Klobuchar. What do you make of how that dynamic played out? Because it did seem like more people were starting to moderate themselves a little bit. I think Cory Booker was even calling for some of this also. This is one of the fascinating and ongoing 
schisms within the Democratic Party between those like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders who favor really fundamental change and others who want a more incremental approach. Those divisions were apparent um, on Wednesday night. Cory Booker, Amy Klobuchar, Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg, all sort of making the case for a more moderate or incrementalist approach. But again, it didn't really burst into flame. I mean, this was not a party that seemed on the brink of civil war at all. This seemed a party that genuinely encompasses people with rather different views and rather different ideological tendencies. Niall Stanage, White House columnist at The Hill. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Last week, we had another mass shooting at Saugus High School in California. The gunman in this case was a 16-year-old student who shot five kids, killed two, including himself. Federal law enforcement officials are investigating whether the gun that was used at that shooting was actually a homemade, unserialized gun known as a ghost gun. The popularity of these ghost guns have increased with advances in technology and now make up a third of guns recovered by the ATF. For more on ghost guns, we spoke to Alon Stevens. He's the Western correspondent at The Trace. Law enforcement sources are telling me that the weapon they are analyzing and it's essentially investigating is this homemade, cruelly made 1911 45 caliber pistol. And because it is devoid of any markings, they are having a difficult time determining the origins of this gun. And this is really kind of indicative of this overarching strategy that they're trying to employ, where they're trying to figure out exactly who had this. Was it the father? Was it him? How did this 16-year-old kid get a hold of this weapon he's not really supposed to have? When they searched the boy's home, there was a bunch of other guns there that presumably were owned by his father. A lot of them were unregistered. Those were all seized. So the question is, you know, did the shooter, the 16-year-old boy, put them together himself? Was it his dad? All these questions. And this is what they're going to be investigating. But the larger problem seems to be this kind of growing influx of these ghost guns. California officials are starting to notice a greater frequency of these. I think they said a third of all firearms seized in Southern California right now are unserialized. That is correct, yes. A third of the firearms in Southern California are these homemade weapons. Um, That's coming from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. Local law enforcement, those numbers are a lot more blurrier. A lot of law enforcement agencies simply just do not keep track of ghost guns, but The feds are trying to, at least in California. And this sentiment is also echoed by federal law enforcement in Northern California as well. So it seems to be something that is kind of sweeping the state in popularity, especially among criminals. I remember a few years ago, there was this one guy, his name was Cody Wilson. He had a company called Defense Distributed, and it was a a big hubbub because he was providing blueprints on how to 3D print your own ghost gun. He was even offering like a little milling box that would do some of the work. I guess what's included on this is a lot of people can buy what's called a lower 80% receiver, I think is what it's called. And that's basically almost the whole gun. You just got to do a couple of tweaks here and there, and then you have a full functioning gun. So I remember that was going on a few years ago, but tell us how this whole process works. Is it that easy just to mill your own gun? Yeah. So, so when an individual goes to buy a firearm through more conventional means, 
those purchases, for the most part, are tracked. The ATF requires gun stores, essentially, to fill out a bunch of paperwork when a person wants to buy a gun, run a background check before they release that gun to the public. And that does a couple things. It creates an investigative paper trail. So if that gun later shows up in a crime, they can have an idea of, okay, where did this kind of come from and give them a lead? Now, with ghost guns, essentially the ghost guns take advantage of a carve-out in the 1968 Gun Control Act, which essentially says if you are an individual at home and you want to make a weapon for personal use, you don't have to do a background check. You don't have to do any paperwork, and that's fine. And this has been going on for decades, and the federal government really didn't care as much because it was so exceedingly difficult to make a gun completely from scratch. But with the internet age and now these companies who are making these parts kits, they have essentially lowered the barrier of entry. And now, it's like as you said, it's a lot easier for these guys to piece together weapons. Now, if you're a law-abiding citizen, that's totally fine. But what happened is, is that a lot of criminals are now taking advantage of this saying, hey, we can get access to firearms without having to go through a background check. If the gun shows up in a crime, it's also going to throw a wrench in any sort of investigations. And that's a boon for a lot of professional criminals, for juveniles who want to get a hold of guns, and even for some criminal organizations to actually profit on this because they can take a bunch of parts kits make a bunch of ghost guns, which has been happening, and then they traffic these to criminals who say, this is a great implement for me to use. So, And through some of the investigations that you've been doing at The Trace in conjunction with other partners, you guys have actually confirmed that these ghost guns are showing up in the hands of criminals more. There's been a string of different attacks that have occurred where when they finally recover the gun, it is an unserialized gun. Yeah, so we're seeing this, and we're seeing them in particularly what I would call aggressive crimes, right? So this is the third mass shooting in California that a perpetrator had a ghost gun. Santa Monica College, the guy had a homemade weapon, the Rancho Tiama shooting rampage. That guy had a homemade weapon, and now we have this one. But we're also seeing this among more so professional criminal organizations. So ATF officials and sources are telling me that they're coming across entire four or five machines where they're just criminal organizations are pumping these things out and they're going into some pretty aggressive criminals that again are using them against police officers so we're beginning to kind of see some of these ghost guns also show up in these law enforcement shootings as well so now that we know that this is becoming more of a problem how are lawmakers responding to this what are they trying to do to get a handle on it ghost guns are really a problem mostly in states that have high gun control because for other states that don't have a lot of gun control legislation, there's plenty of other avenues to get a hold of guns. So it's really been kind of relegated to states like California or states like New York as their own problem. Sources within federal agencies are actually telling me that they feel somewhat thrown to the wolves with some of this. Statewise, though, lawmakers have been trying to tackle it. California passed a law a couple of years ago that said, if you built one of these guns at home, you need to register it with the California Department of Justice. Some critics of that law said that it was not very effective or not effective enough because it's kind of based on an honor system. A new law, actually a new bill, which was recently signed this year is now saying that you're going to have to go through a background check in California to get what they call firearm precursor parts. They're hoping that will kind of create a, a shrinking or a narrowing gateway for people who are trying to build guns for nefarious reasons and essentially kind of skirt the law. Alon Stevens, Western correspondent at The Trace. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter 
and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.